Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton. So every night I go to bed and I lay there and I think to myself, why are we here? What is the point of all this? If only I had someone I could ask and they could tell me the answer. Well, I got the best thing that I could to do that. And that's the guy sitting across from me right now. His name, of course, is Bill Nye, the science guy. I'm incredibly excited to have him on the show. Easily one of the smartest people I've ever met before. And we're going to get to so many different things from climate change to why we're here in the cosmos. Uh, This is a a long conversation. Uh, Bill is so smart that he sometimes gets a little bit uh, in the numbers. So if you get confused, don't worry. Just stick around, keep going. And uh, I can promise you, uh, especially towards the end of this uh, podcast, it gets really deep and optimistic for once. Um, So without further ado, I'm pretty excited to welcome Bill Nye. Bill, thank you so much for coming all the way from Studio City. Yes. It was a long flight, I'm sure. Uh, For those of you listening, it was a few minutes of driving. Um, All right. So we have so much to talk about. Climate change, uh, spaceships, rockets, um, the cosmos, you name it. I have a million questions for you. Should we start small? Up to you. All right. Let's start small. Are we alone in the universe? How could we possibly be? There's 200,000... 200 billion, rather, stars in our, ga- in our galaxy, and there's at least that many galaxies. Now, when I was in school, people estimated that there might be a planet around every 100 stars, one planet around every 100. Now everybody figures there's 10 around every. So that's a factor but here's of... But here's the thing that, that's thousand. really... Thousand. Well, so what's so fascinating is, I, I just mentioned to you, I'm reading this book, The Accidental Universe, which is totally fascinating and it talks about all the different you know just even goes through the numbers uh of 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 the galaxy and you know between those galaxies you mentioned it's two million light years away right and and you mean the the breadth of the milky way yeah and it's and and if you look at the math the on earth we make up what zero point you know we could go zeros all the way to your house one percent of of the mass of, of all the things on earth, are we kind of an afterthought in the universe or are we, are we an important part of it? There's a fabulous word. Are you giving uh, the universe agency? Did the universe think about having us? That's the question that uh, keeps Uh, me up uh, at night. Well, that's, (laughs) I think that's a, that hypothesis would have to be refined. You know, we need it needed to be testable. What is the universe thinking about? The great question, I mean, are we, are we alone in the universe? And then the other big question is, where did we all come from? And do you have answers? Because I would no, love to know. No, that's why we explore space. So that's why we want to send spacecraft to Mars and look for signs of life. Europa, the moon of Jupiter, look for signs of life. To answer that question, and those do questions. You, and right? do you think that those questions are answerable? Yes. How? If we went to Mars and found some sort of mar- Mars probes, some Mars. microbes on Mars, or, uh, th- that, would, that would answer the question. In well, what that way? would certainly be profound. Does do those microbes have DNA? Are we descendants of Martians, or is it a separate genesis? If it's a separate genesis of life, then you got to figure in just one solar system we find two different kinds of life. That would heck. 
there's billions of solar systems. Do you do you does do you like lay awake in bed at night thinking about if we are here alone on this universe or an, or an accident of sorts or if the or the what other beings might look like or is it just as as lay people that do that? What do you mean? I'm a lay person. <laughs> you're a little smarter than a lay person. <laughs> I don't know if I'm smarter, but I I was exposed to some uh, some of these ideas early on. Uh, the um, uh, I don't lay aw- lie awake about it. The thing that I do lie awake about, though, is is what is it even meaningful to ask what came before the Big Bang, and then this whole business of time, 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 time. So you send a spacecraft to Mars uh, uh, by radio. It takes seven minutes to get a signal there. It takes seven minutes to get a signal back from Mars. This is by way of example. So is it? Do you say, well, the parachute has opened. The parachute on the spacecraft has opened, but you won't know it for seven minutes. Is it actually, is it actually a question of the parachute doesn't open here until the information arrives here? Like the, the simultaneous, uh, simultaneity of events. These sort of things can make you crazy. It's and almost like the tree falling in the woods, no one there to Absolutely hear it. the tree falling in the woods. And the irony about that, about the tree falling in the woods, is the, the question is, if no one's there to hear it, uh, did it really fall? And it turns out that our observation affects the outcome of experiments. And this, get, this if you like to worry about things, this is pretty great. The double-slit experiment where you shoot a photon at two slits and the probability of them coming out is very well known, but the actual performance or, or, or a, a fate of a single proton, photon is unknowable. So is this like Schrodinger's cat kind of Schro- stuff? Total Schrodinger's cat. It's Schrodinger out the yin-yang. So the whole thing... <laughs> the so there's two ways of looking at it. Some people, and this is you know where I've crossed paths with... Uh, with people who claim to be deeply religious or uh, fundamentalists let's go let's, religion's not really the thing fundamentalists who claim to use the bible as a science textbook there's some people that are just very very troubled about not knowing these things well isn't that all what religion is about religion is the, is a is a in their mind it's a um, an instruction manual, and, and and therefore we don't have to think about these things. Yeah, I get. Yeah, maybe I don't want to b- b- uh, attribute too many conclusions to the. But the, but the Earth, the idea that the Earth is six thousand year, years old is patently wrong. Yeah, and so if you're going to expand your whole world view from that, you're going to get a lot of things patently wrong. So you either in in the in the process of science, you either say. Wow, this is, we can't know what happened before the Big Bang or the Planck time, 10 to the minus 43rd seconds, or the Schwarzschild radius or whatever the heck it is. And you can just make yourself crazy running in circles, screaming, we'll never understand this. Oh my goodness, my life sucks. My life has no meaning. Or you can go, wow, that's cool. My grandparents knew nothing really of relativity. Now we re- use relativity to use our, to operate our phones, for crying out loud. Mm. So uh, there's two ways of looking at it. Either it's very troubling and, and uh, crazy-making, or it's empowering and wonderful. The unknowable nature of the universe. So 
you just launched this. Tell us about the spaceship that you just launched. Is spaceship. it called a spaceship or a space sail? We call it a, a spacecraft. Space boat. Spacecraft. Okay. The, you a just solar lo- sail spacecraft. So it's tell us tell tell the listeners about it, and then I have a million questions for oh, you. Well, so the the premise of the bit, our story begins. Let's say with dun, dun, dun. Comet Holly, we used to call Halley's Comet. Yeah, Halley's Comet. They found people from the Holly family, and apparently <clears throat> they're more inclined to say Holly than Haley. So uh, Comet Holly comes by before it was named Comet Holly, before Edmund Holly saw it. Or This is 1970s uh, or so? Uh, no, 1607. Oh, 1607. <laughs> Wait, but it came back around. Uh, 1986. 1986, yeah. okay. Uh, so um, he looked at it, Johann Kepler, after whom... Kepler's laws of planetary motion are named. Mm-hmm. Kepler looked at it and reasoned that the tails, if you look closely at a comet, uh, almost any comet, it has two tails. It has a dust tail and what's called an ion tail. And he reasoned that they're both pointing away from the sun. You know, when a comet comes in toward the sun, the tails are pointing away. As it goes away from the sun, the tails are still pointing away. And so Kepler reasoned that whatever is driving or creating those tails must be the sun. So perhaps one day humankind will sail upon the stars, just shooting from the hip, just thinking out, typing out loud, or let's say scribing out loud. So then um, in the 1920s, people were discovering the nature of photons they have no rest mass, as we say in relativity. They don't have any weight or mass, yet they have momentum. Yet they're pure energy, and when they hit things, they push on them. So when I was in Carl Sagan's class during the disco era, 1970s, he talked about a mission, to, uh, a spacecraft, a bunch of people at NASA uh, creating a spacecraft that would catch up with Comet Holly. And it would be this huge solar sail. So this would be a thing about a kilometer on a side, 10 soccer fields on a side, huge shiny piece of mylar out in space, and sunlight, what we call photon pressure or light pressure, would uh, get it going so fast that it would catch up with Comet Holly. We'd take pictures, take some temperature measurements, radiation, big fun things. And wait, the photons, there's no motor. It's the photons that are pushing it there's forward. There's no rocket motor. Yep. And so so you just launched a version of this. Yes. Yeah, so 40 years, 42 years after Sagan was talking about it when I was in class, we launched a very small but very capable solar sail spacecraft. So uh, we were on the Falcon Heavy, the largest rocket in service today. And we were one of 24 secondary payloads, sprung, sprung, sprung. It's in in space. There's no sound. It just goes. Hmm. And our spacecraft was uh, launched, ejected from the main uh, rocket. And so on uh, September 7th, uh, September, July 7th, we're going to hit return on a keyboard in at Cal Poly, California Polytechnic Institute in San Luis Obisco, Obispo, where all of the engineers go surfing. And uh, we're going to deploy the sails. And the moment the sails come out, and the word sails, everybody, they're very, very thin, super shiny pieces of mylar. 
And when they come out, the sunlight's going to start giving it a push immediately. So how, two questions. First is, so you said they're very, very thin. Uh, there's, there's a lot of garbage out in space, little stones and rockets and, you mean, chips, you know, of paint. chips and all these things. <laughs> uh, how, how, how will it not, you know, break a hole in the sail? Well, so it has ripstop okay. in it. And, and we hear it has ripstop features, and this is commercial. I love how I'm like, I have an idea you haven't thought of. <laughs> yeah, no, it's all right. But uh, if, um, for example, the sails are held uh, out just like on a sailboat with booms, mm. and these are made of this crazy cobalt steel, beautiful, gorgeous, amazing steel. People call them tape measure booms because they are curved very much like a tape measure. And there's two layers of them on each boom stitched together at the Air Force Research Lab in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Kirtland Air Force Base, by this guy who's 12 years old. And, oh, my God, <laughs> you're old enough to drive and you're doing... Anyway, uh, they, uh, these things are crazy stiff. And if a micrometeorite, a chip of paint from an old space shuttle mission or whatever, were to hit exactly on the boom, you got to figure it would give it a a twist, a nudge, some momentum, maybe it would rip it apart. But if a tiny piece of uh, micrometeorite, a chip of paint, hits the sail itself, sails, it'll just go right through. Except and in space, no sound. It'll just be... Um, sorry, that just did a sound. Yeah, uh, uh, we're embellishing. Um, so how do you test this before it goes up, or is it just it's theoretical until you actually open it? Test the uh, photon how do you, pressure. Yeah, how do you know how much if it's going to be enough? If if it's oh, so this is as we say susceptible to analysis, and so uh, <clears throat> people measure the quantum, the energy of a photon, in a vacuum. We shine beams of light of known uh, energy, and uh, then you know how much uh, energy is in uh, a beam of sunlight. We know how bright the sun is. So that you do a calculation, solar pressure times square meters times area. And so for you, if you're scoring at home, if you're scoring along with us, as we say in baseball, uh, the momentum is expressed as mass times velocity. Right? You might hear the expression MV. So let's look at the famous equation E equals MC squared. Einstein's. And now divide both sides by C, by uh, the speed of light you'll get an expression E over C equals MC. <laughs> okay, which in English means? That, mom that E over C equals the momentum of a photon. And which is how fast is that? So it's nine micronewtons per square meter. Which is? Uh, a paperclip on a boxing ring. A paperclip pushing a boxing ring? Yeah. The, so the pretty slow. Of a paper clip. Pretty slow. However. And wait, is it, does it get slower the further away it is from the sun yeah you know the sunlight spreads out uh the way any the light from any light bulb spreads out so how far into the solar system do you expect that this well, can go well practically uh for example jaxa japanese aerospace exploration agency is planning a mission to jupiter and a solar sail mission to jupiter and that'll yeah. take you know 10 years something like that 10 years to get out there yeah as we say you can trade money for time so there's in solar sails there's no fuel no rocket fuel you'll never run out of fuel and the sun shines night and day oh wait you're in space there's no night 
And so that's the key to it is this tiny, tiny force all the time. And is there ever going to be a world where you will be able to do manned solar sail missions? I don't think so. I no. mean, I'm open-minded, but a human is massive. A human's a heavy thing. So this is more of like these are little robots out in the well, universe exploring. Instruments. I mean, just compare. Just look how capable your phone is. Your phone can remember a lot more than you can, and it's tiny. Your phone can capture pictures with a lens that's comparable in size to the human eye. It's actually quite a bit more compact and can store a lot more information than the human brain, uh, the human visual cortex, uh, with a given given image. So that's uh, these are this is a cool technical aspect of solar sails is we're going to take some cool pictures. It is to be hoped. So do you think that we will? Not in mine or your lifetime, but within a certain period of time, do you think we'll find life somewhere out there? I want to find it in my lifetime, people. Do you really? That's why I'm head of the Planetary Society. That's why I took this job. Do you think that you will? Uh, I'm very hopeful that we will send the right spacecraft to Mars. So you think it's on Mars? You think there's something? Yeah, with the right instrument, instrument, suite of instruments. Dig around under the sand near the equator on a sunny day, a sunny summer Martian day, and find some dampness and some crazy microbes, Mars probes, still making a living. <laughs> no, so Mars is... Uh, and is, is Mars the only place you think no, there'll no, be? No, no, no. Jupiter, places like that yeah, too? Yeah, well, or? Jupiter, the place of Jupiter is called is Europa. Mm-hmm. And Europa That's was discovered by Galileo. It's one of the Galilean moons. It's pretty big. It has twice as much seawater as the Earth. But isn't it, if there is water, there's something. That's what we, th- everywhere you go on Earth and there's wa- there, where there is water, where there's dampness, there's something alive. So are people doing any experiments to try to get to, to, to Europa to try to see? Oh, yeah. So uh, the Planetary Society, planetary.org, membership organization, the world's largest independent space interest organization. You can join by going to planetary.org and clicking around there on the homepage. Well, yes, so... It is actually really fun. I spent quite a bit of time watching you. videos. So we work very hard with the U.S. Congress especially. And there is a mission called Europa... Mission is space talk for spacecraft. There's a spacecraft going to Europa in 2023. So uh, the idea is... Uh, the radiation environment of Jupiter is, is uh, aggressive. Jupiter is a very, very strong magnetic field, uh, much, much, much stronger than the Earth, and so it holds all these charged particles. Along with sunlight, the sun b- broadcasts uh, what we could, people call the solar wind, which are protons that carry a charge. And they get out to Jupiter and they get trapped in the magnetic field. And so there's a ring of bzzz, uh, charged particles that zap a lot of electronics. So the, uh, the, um, the, the plan with Europa Clipper is to take these really long elliptical orbits woo, 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 around Jupiter and Europa. And every time you fly by Europa, you'll take pictures, radiation data, temperature data, um, spectral, so-called um, spectrum of light data, woo, 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 with every of uh, 20-some orbits, and then you send that back to Earth, and we'll know more about Europa, and then someday, perhaps, 
we'll have a spacecraft that lands on the ice on Europa and and melts its way into the Europanian sea. And maybe there are Europanian fish people swimming around, speaking Europanian to each other. <laughs> no, but it's... And do you, do you think... Okay, so... It's uh, a hypothesis. It's a total hypothesis. It's, it could, they, they could be having the same conversation right now, recording on But their podcasts. idea of the sky is probably quite different. If you're a Europanian swimming around in the Europanian Sea, this is the moon of Jupiter, everybody, discover, uh, where the, uh, the ocean, which is, has twice as much water as the Earth, was discovered by a woman, Margie Kivelson. Uh, uh, this is the idea where the... We have liquid water, and that's a very good or seems to be the best solvent for life, Things, something uh, a liquid that can carry chemicals around. If you are a Europanian fish person, what's above you is ice, a well, layer that's of what, ice. Yeah, there's a lot of ice because it's so far away there, from the sun. Uh, if there are Europanians, their idea of the sky has got to be quite different from ours. And how much ice then would there be because it is so far away? Uh, 20 kilometers, 30 kilometers, you know, 15, 20 miles of ice. Of oh, ice! Of ice. <laughs> so you'd say, well, why isn't the whole thing frozen? Well, Bill, why isn't the whole thing? Because the gravitational uh, attraction of Jupiter is so strong. How strong is it? It's so strong. <laughs> Should I leave? <laughs> that the, that the Euro, European... Ice shell gets squished, squeezed with every orbit. So it's enough, oh, wow. enough squeezing to keep it warm. It's friction. Yeah. It's amazing. The whole thing's amazing. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. So you, so I'm, I'm like literally like, which way do I go with the questions? Okay, I'm gonna stick. I'm gonna stay in space for a second here. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. I couldn't breathe there. Um, oh, so the solar sail, the, what we call light sail two, yeah, is gonna orbit. Uh, is gonna get released, and then we're gonna see. They're very careful. Everybody's very careful in spacecraft. You get them on orbit or in orbit, and then you send radio signals to make sure they're working properly. And then you gently deploy them so they don't run into anything else. And then you check them out some more. And then we'll send the command to deploy the sail. So it's about 10 days of waiting around, screwing around. Do you, is there, how do we ever, okay, so when you talk about the size of the, of the Milky Way and you talk about all these other galaxies and, and these billions and billions and billions of planets and how the, there are stars in the skies we look at that died you know, two billion years ago, and th that's how far away they are. The light is just making is, it to us now. How do you think we will ever get to a point that we can build spacecraft that will allow us to leave our solar system or get to the ends of our galaxy? Or is that just... Well, so th speaking of light sail too, the only, right now, the only technology anybody can think of, the only technology anybody can think of 
to go to another star system is a solar sail. So as you pointed out earlier, the farther you get from the sun, the farther you get from the sun, the less energy there is. So what you would do is build a laser array, a huge field of lasers, either here on Earth, presumably near the equator, or on the moon, on the far side of the moon. And then you would zap the solar sail, except on the moon there's no sound. You would zap the solar sail and push it to another star system. Now, if you are a member of the planetary organization of the other star system, Proxima Centauri, Alpha Centauri, and the spacecraft got there in some reasonable number of decades, it would be going extremely fast. Hi, everybody. Here's the energy equivalent of a nuclear weapon. Greetings. <laughs> Greetings from Earth. If it were to hit another planet, I mean, it would be a catastrophe, a catastrophe. So uh, this, the ethics of this are to be questions. But nevertheless, it's a cool thing to sit around and think about. But as far as actually going to another star system, we just don't have any way to do it. Is it, there... Well, you say that we don't have any way to do it. Will there be a way to do it? Uh, uh, right now, no. But, you know, careful, uh, never there, say never. Are there like sci-fi theories? Well, of- sure. I mean, if you, they just reproduced a wrinkle in time. Did you read that as a kid? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Your kids are four and two. Two, two, two and four. Yeah. yeah. They're not reading the wrinkle in time yeah, yet. But four or five years from now. Anyway, the, the premise was that the universe is like a string. And if you just take, instead of trying to go down the length of the string, you just take the two ends and put them together. But hasn't there been research done recently that has said that um, the, actually the idea of doing that, of like creating a wormhole is to be slower than... Well, maybe. I mean, I don't know. But people love to speculate about this. When I was in college in the 1970s, Carl Sagan was there with Kip Thorne, who's renowned again, or deservedly, for working on the movie Interstellar and making it scientifically not unreasonable. Hans Bethe, this guy who discovered the process in stars that makes all the elements. Uh, They sit around and argue about this 40 years ago. And, and I'm sure so, people will be sitting around arguing about it in 40 well, years but, from now. But you don't know. So here's, here's something I talk about all the time, and I'll talk about it again. It's been discovered that we don't know, depending which astronomer or astrophysicist you talk to, about 96% of the universe. might be 94% of the universe. We don't know what it is. There's this source of gravity pulling everything apart, accelerating it. Everything is flying apart. And nobody knows why. But by analogy, analogy, my grandparents grew up without relativity. Now relativity is how we do everything. And on the same uh, rocket, the same mission, SpaceX Falcon Heavy, the third one ever launched, was the new atomic clock, space-based atomic clock. And the idea there is we'll be able to compare, one of the ideas is we'll be able to compare the rate that that clock ticks when it's in a pretty fast orbit around the Earth with the rate that clocks tick here on Earth. Hmm. And relativity uh, predicts exactly how much they'll be different. The one hmm. on going fast will be slower. So um, uh, who knows, maybe in the next few decades, people will understand the nature of dark energy 
and dark matter and it will become commonplace and there will be a way to go between star systems. But right now it's completely uh, not possible. It's not even theory at this point, right? Well, there's a lot of hypotheses. Sure. Yeah. There's zillions of them. When you... But I'm not an astrophysicist and even those guys, you can't trust them. <laughs> go ahead, Tim. Sorry. So I, I think what, so one of the questions that I, and I want to get to climate change next, cause I know this is something that actually ties into all this stuff too. Uh, but last question on this topic, when you think about us in the universe, you know, the, there are these, all these reports lately that, you know, people have seen UFOs and things like that. Oh, so the UFO, I got an explanation for that. Okay. That was my next question. Yeah. So I, um, I here's my theory. I'm just going to present it to you real please. quick. Yeah. I don't think that there is an intelligent life form out there that will ever come to us. We will go to them. What makes you say that? Because I think that it's it. I don't. I don't think that there are UFOs flying around in space. Um, I think if they uh, maybe they're smarter than us and they would look at us and be like, "Oh my God, Donald Trump's your president. I'm out of here." Yeah. But but I think that really what would I think that that if we didn't see them, if they're not here now, they're not coming tomorrow, and then they weren't coming yesterday. It's like we think when you think of time and. Uh, where we sit in the history of this planet and of the universe, like why would this moment be the moment that it would happen? So that's you heard the um, the twinkling Christmas lights. No hypothesis. So the idea, let's say our civilization is a blinking light. It's uh, when it's on right now, but we will destroy ourselves and we'll be off. Yep. Uh, we'll destroy ourselves either through climate change, nuclear war, some fabulous suite of diseases, come up with something. So the other civilization, not too far away, is going through the same thing. <clears throat> its light bulb has to be on when our light bulb is on. Unless the blinking lights are on at the same time, we never hear from each other. It could be we just wipe ourselves out without ever hearing from them. They have already wiped themselves out, or they will wipe themselves out. But in the course of human history, you know, pick a number. How old is civilization? 10,000 years? About? Mm -hmm. uh, you could say, well, it's 12,000. Okay, 12,000. Even if it was 50. Yeah, right. We have only been able to have telescopes for 400. We've only been able to have radio telescopes for less than a century. So in the scheme of things, we have not been listening very long. And who knows what the other civilizations are up to? And why wouldn't they be just like us, wondering about their place in the universe and where they all came from? Why wouldn't they be doing that? Wait. So, what was your what's your theory on the UFOs? That oh, that I look. I'm a mechanical engineer. I worked on airplanes for a couple years. I had security clearance, not super high, dark black, uh, but I had. For example, I worked on a fighter plane where I knew its single engine rate of climb, but I did not know its top speed. This is how compartmentalized, hmm. on the same airplane, this is how compartmentalized the information is. I worked with a bunch of guys, and they were all men. Uh, no, no, geez, they were not all men, mostly men. I worked with a bunch of people who went to Groom Lake all the time, uh, the Air Force Base in Nevada that's secret. Mm -hmm. where the um uh did secret, you go there huh did you go no i never oh. went no no but all the guys i work with and this one gal went there routinely and 
one branch of the service doesn't tell the other branches what they're doing. I mean, that's just all there is oh, to so it. Oh, so your theory is when you're when we're seeing these videos, when these Navy pilots saw something they didn't recognize, it was some other secret rocket plane missile screw around thing. It could have even been an artifact of some um, of some flare or or uh, new type of lighting uh, of lighting system that just produced this bright light for a few moments i mean you guys i am open-minded as the next guy (laughs) but this expression that carl sagan popularized which really is the essence of skeptical thinking in science is extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof because young naval aviators saw something they did not recognize and it seemed to fly in a pattern that they were unfamiliar with does not mean it came from another civilization it means they didn't know what it was. So did flying sources just originate in sci-fi and then become a part of our mind that well, they existed, or well, was favorite, it the other way around? My favorite one. My favorite one is the original movie, The Thing. The Thing. Yes. That's my favorite. <laughs> or he says, watch the skies. Keep watching the skies. So everybody, understand before World War I, there were cannons. And there were, you know, people, what is everybody obsessed with Game of Thrones? And people would shoot arrows up in the sky and they'd fall on you and it would suck. (laughs) But this idea that you could fly above the clouds and drop bombs from unknown uh, airplanes or unknown aircraft is, is a pretty new thing. And it is something to be afraid of. And if you were a Londoner... In My grandfather war. lived in London during the war. I mean, and, and these freaking rockets and yeah. buzz bombs are buzz coming bombs, from yeah. somewhere, killing everything. I mean, you are freaking he, afraid of it. He said that he. I remember him telling me when he was alive that uh, that the sound was worse than the actual. You know. Yeah. The, so the, the buzz bomb, my understanding was intended to scare you. Yeah. And well, then the the also the. The Luftwaffe had this airplane, the dive bomber, with these slats on the fleeting edge of the wing just to make the screaming sound, just to freak you out. And it did. So this is actually a good segue into another question I have is you – so I've always been – and regular listeners of the podcast will know where I'm going with this. But um, I've always been – in the early days, in my early life, I was obsessed with technology. I thought it could cure all all ills and make well, the world a better can. place. Or we can. But at the same time, it can really make a mess. And look at the world we live in today uh, and all the terrible things that are happening as a result of social media and these devices I don't actually think are that great, to be quite honest. Phones? Phones? Yeah. Oh, man, they're awesome. No, they're not. They do R2 terrible are things. Not. Look R2 at the, are not. Look... <laughs> No, so there's a feature. I don't know if you've seen it, but you can turn it off. Yes, but it is. It there's also a feature. I don't know if you've seen it. That is addictive. That oh, th- th- there are these things called notifications that pop up, and there are and there is a company called Facebook with an evil genius. Well, so I think what's going to happen with Facebook? Not changing the subject, uh, really, but in newspapers. And radio broadcasts, there are regulations. Uh, yes. You can't just say whatever. You can't print libelous stuff. You can't just um, uh, accuse people of crimes without evidence and so on and so on. And so there are sanctions and regulations, and we have a Federal Communications Commission and so on. And I think that's going to find its way into social media where there'll be – I mean, it's already there. 
but it'll be formalized. And so I say all the time, people love to be critical of lawyers. Sure they do. But part of the reason, or one of the reasons, people still want to move to the United States with all our mass shootings and traffic wrecks and you made reference to our unusual president. <laughs> um, our laws are better. Our laws are more sophisticated because they've been, we've, been we've been hammering on them longer than a lot of other governments. And this has great value. I mean, look, you guys, I'm not saying things are perfect. By but no do you means. think the technology is always going to be better than the negatives? Well, I think it's always going to be a mixed blessing, and you got to figure out what you're going to do with it. I mean, the the don't you worry a little bit? You know, you talked about like the blinking Christmas light. Don't you wor worry a little bit that we are going to create a technology? And we're doing it with climate change, right? Uh, which is yep. a, a good segue for this. But that we're going to create some sort of AI that kills us, or that or or something that technology is going to build and science is going to invent that is going to have the, that the, the nuclear bomb will go off. Well, so if you like to worry about things, I tell everybody, this is a great time. <laughs> no, I mean, this is a fantastic time. So uh, nuclear weapons could destroy all of us or research into nuclear energy may lead to a practical form of fusion and then we'll uh, have limitless electricity for most of the world, and we'll suck carbon dioxide out of the air, we'll uh, desalinate seawater, and we'll provide clean water, access to the internet, renewable electricity for everyone on Earth. And that'll be cool. Or we'll blow ourselves up. So if, you know, this thing where, by way of example, this idea that you have the freedom not to get vaccinated is just wrong. I love you all, but it's just wrong. I completely agree with you, one billion, trillion percent. No, you do not have the right to become an incubator for a new breed of measles that's going to kill me. No, you got to get vaccinated. You are not allowed to throw your sewage on the sidewalk because it makes me sick. You cannot set off nuclear weapons uh, because it could kill me. So... Along with the perils of technology come the great blessings. This is why we have laws, for crying out loud. Well, it's funny that you bring this up because the entire ethos of Silicon Valley is this libertarian philosophy, which takes the complete well, here's what's wrong. opposite approach. Well, here's what's wrong with libertarianism. They, they just haven't traveled enough. I'm Sorry, you guys. I love you all, <laughs> but I, I am not, as you may know, I am the dorkiest white guy you are ever going to meet. I am Mr. Dorky White Guy. I was brought up middle class at a time when you could afford college. I was brought up in a household with a tradition of academic achievement. And here I am. I, I had nothing. Look, I plan the hand I'm dealt. But as Chris Rock says, Chris Rock, Chris Rock, African-American comedian, none of you people change places with me <laughs> and I'm rich. And that's what the libertarians, as far as I can tell, do not understand. This is what Ayn Rand did not grasp is not everybody gets an even start. Not everybody who's born gets an even gets the same hand dealt to them. Mm. Get the freak over it. We are all in this together. You can cut. You can curse on here. You did the it on smallest. The smaller the community you live in, the more obvious this is to you. And what's becoming clear on the planet Earth is we are all on a pretty small planet. So we're going to have to get along. And when it comes to regulations, my libertarian friends, it's like a machine.
Your machine has all the parts it needs, but no more. We want all the regulations we need, but no more. But the idea that regulations are inherently bad is inherently wrong. I love you all, but you're wrong about that. I 1,000% I agree with you. So speaking of climate change, so this is something that, do you think this is the thing that could be the end of us if you had to pick from all of yeah, them? Yeah, sure. Yeah, and by the and not the end of us. You know, it's been said very well. I think that humans are extinction proof. You think so? Yeah, I mean extinction proof. You're not going to kill everybody. A disease could. Uh, I mean, but it probably won't because there's such a diversity of genes in the human population. I mean, there's apocalyptic scenarios to be sure, where you wipe out billions. And um, historically, diseases have been enormously influential. Your European guys. You show up in the Americas with smallpox, everybody dies except you, uh, then you take over. I got all that. But to kill everybody is very unlikely. However, climate change could lower the quality of life for billions of people in just a matter of decades. And so we want to get to work on this. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. I think the problem that the question that I have is, is how does somebody actually have an impact? And here's, and I'm going to preface this with a question. You drove over the hill. Did you drive in a gas car or electric car? My oh, Chevy Bolt. Okay. Very fond of my Bolt. So your Chevy Bolt, which is an electric car. Great. But the amount of emissions that were probably put into the atmosphere to make that new car oh, yeah. okay. are going to be worse than. So we should definitely bought... run in circles screaming and not address this. Problem. No, 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 no. I'm not. But also, like, let me. And then, and then, you probably got in an airplane recently. Oh, that's the thing, man. But yeah, no. And wait, hold on. I'm, I'm not done. So you got on an airplane, and if you flew once to New York and back, oh, you yeah. put more crap into the atmosphere than so, if you'd have driven a Volvo. So let's 19... solve the problem. But wait, but wait. There's more. And that space rocket, that Falcon that went up, is probably going to have a worse effect on the atmosphere, putting alumina and all those other things into the into the stratosphere than all of our cars put together. So no, no. but it, that's measurable. But you're right; the environmental effect or impact of rocket launches is uh, very very important. But idea. My, so here's my question: It's like it's great that I have an LED light bulb in my in my closet, but fifteen like, times as efficient as the light bulbs you grew up with. But that is negligible compared to that rock. So do you run in circle screaming or do you address the problem? So here's, by way of example, there are proposals to use this old process discovered in the 1890s uh, to make methane out of carbon dioxide. Okay, explain that to, to us. To make natural gas yeah. out of the air. Yeah, okay. And what you need is energy. You need electricity. So suppose we uh, develop very efficient solar panels, for example, in the example of spacecraft. For example, in the example. In the example of spacecraft, uh, my, the solar panels on my house in Southern California are about 15% efficient. They were built by a company called Evergreen Solar, which had a very cool manufacturing process, but their company was so-called undercapitalized and they went out of business. Solar panels are about 15% efficient. The solar panels used on spacecraft are made by the same process, but they're selected uh, to be more efficient. In other words, the ones that come out better, we use on spacecraft because... And what percent efficiency space, are they? They're over 30%. It's 
exposed solar panels were 50% or 80% efficient. Then you could make all the freaking methane you wanted and you would densify it by getting it super cold, taking even more electricity. Then you'd run your airplanes and your rockets from densified methane, who, which, in, uh, if you could get it all dialed in, would be uh, carbon neutral. Then with all this extra electricity, we also developed schemes for taking carbon out of the air. Then instead of trying to run two beams of protons into each other to make fusion, we take boron, atomic number five, run a beam of protons in it and create three pairs of protons, three alpha particles, fusion, super hot, uh, take that heat and make a, run a turbine just like a nuclear or steam powered plant. And then we have all this electricity for everybody. There's two ways of looking at it. Right now, we have very carbon intensive technologies. We need to make them cleaner to transition them to a clean future so you got to go into it like we're gonna solve these problems rather than ah, ah, ah. <laughs> i'm not i'm not uh, all i'm saying is that we are it's almost like it's almost like my problem with the democrats these days is like they're freaking out about plastic straws Plastic straws are a great thing to freak out about. Yes, but they are. But they're. But but then you get you you like you you go on Twitter and you tweet about plastic straws, and then you get in your Range Rover and you like drive to the grocery store and don't bring your own plastic bags. Okay, like, so. But okay. but but I it's I think that the, for me the problem with this climate change conversation is it's it's too myopic and it's not looking at the big picture. Well, so enough. I say all the time we need big ideas. Yes. But the case of, let's just talk about plastic straws for a second. <laughs> Shit. No, really. Really bring this There's up. nothing better <laughs> performance-wise in terms of performance than a plastic straw. They're the perfect diameter. They fit in your mouth and they're slippery inside. You can, you can draw up those, uh, the... the, the um, Coca-Cola, well, whatever. Well, the Thai... The um, oh, the Thai ball, uh, the little balls. Uh, yes. Thai tea or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, you can get all that. With a plastic straw. So paper straws are being developed that work okay. We have metal straws. But metal straws are cool if you have a way to clean them. So run a, we'll, we'll solve the plastic straw problem. Yeah. It's a cool problem. <laughs> Let's just solve it. And you'll see in the next five years, Uncle Bill predicts, paper straws will be as good. Uh, they'll, have, they'll be as high performance as plastic straws. We'll figure this out. It's a perfect, it's, it's How, an analogy to be expanded to all that is bad and evil and make it great and good. How long do you think we have to figure this out? So we, well, I had the latest a, estimates, 12 years, so whatever it is. Okay, but so couple I had, decades. I had a, um, a guest on the podcast uh, last year who wrote a book on uh, the five mass extinctions that happened before yeah, ours. We're in the sixth, almost certainly. We're in the sixth. And the thing that he pointed out which i always think about is that um you know if you imagine the oceans are rising two degrees right um uh, celsius it's celsius and if you imagine that happened to our bodies like what that would do to us kill you yeah it would kill you so the the, we're starting to see the the repercussions of this where you have you know more natural disasters taking place you have the fires of course right over the hill where we live like there's all these things that are happening 
is it going to and the the big problem is it is a communications problem we can you know i think that donald trump is a total buffoon however well, i think thing. he's a great communicator and i think that the problem we have with the climate change thing is that is that it's this thing that's happening in slow motion and people aren't necessarily well, aware of it well until- the other thing you know for you conspiracy buffs the fossil fuel industry has been the problem they have worked very very hard and they've been successful you talked about communication They've been successful in communicating the idea that scientific uncertainty, plus or minus to a couple percent, is somehow the same as plus or minus 100% doubt about the whole thing. And, you know, ExxonMobil uh, was found to have memos in 1977 admitting or pointing out that what their business was a, a dead ender, that they were going to kill everybody if they kept this up, but they kept it up. So uh, uh, as far as Donald Trump, the thing about him that is so troubling for me is he is a compulsive liar. Mm-hmm. He might be, I mean, I'm not, uh, not going to parse whether he's psychopathic or sociopathic, but he lies about thing he, things he doesn't even need to lie about. And uh, that's, so it's just not a guy you want representing your country. No, completely so, not. So he'll... Um, he he will be transitioned out, and um, uh, we'll see what the future holds. But I think the what's going on. The reason people stick with Donald Trump, I think, is the judges. People, oh yeah, it's, it's all it all comes uh, down uh, to no, no matter how uh, unusual. It comes down to abortion. At the yeah, end of the day. yeah. No matter how unusually he acts, or how much he lies about lying, and compulsively lies more about lying. We've you, all known people like. That. Do you think that people he, that continually tell white lies? Do you think he's had a, um, uh, a a a worse effect on climate than anyone in history? I well, mean, he would if. I mean, if Scott he, Pruitt, I think, was the worst human being that well, has I mean, ever. Well, it's just the wrong guy for the job. A vile. Well, I mean, you can look at it that way, but I those cannot guys, stand him. <laughs> everything they've done is reversible. That's my. It opinion. is reversible. Yeah. So, everything they've tried to do is reversible. So, uh, what I so, remind everybody is the United. What makes the United States work is change is built in. Every four years, we take a meeting. We're going to change things. Every six years in Senate, every two years in Congress, so in House of Representatives. So this change is built in, and things are going to change. It just would be better the sooner the, sooner the better. Um, okay, last question on climate change, and then, and then we'll kind of land our, our light sail spaceship. Um, do you think that we will get to a point where we will see even worse things happen on Earth before the the majority of people start to actually believe that this is a major problem? Or do you think that we'll be able to stop it before that happens? Well, no, I think they're going to see a lot more problems, floods and fires. And uh, the other thing, everybody, is displaced populations. That's what the, oh, US, the immigration stuff is. U.S. military yeah. is very concerned about, yeah. People can't get water. There's a drought. They're going to move. They're people, um, terrorists take over dams in uh, Mesopotamia to, as a terrorist activity. And so uh, when you don't have access to hydroelectric power or irrigation water, there's just nothing but trouble. So they're gonna, I believe there'll be a lot more trouble before things get better. But the longest journey begins with but a single step. If the, the example I think about all the time, and I've mentioned this many times, my grandfather, this is not somebody that, 
some friend of a friend of a friend. My grandfather went into World War I on a horse. He rode around at night on a horse in the trenches, very sensitive to when there was a full moon. My grandmother could not light three candles with a single match because that's bad luck because if you kept a match lit that long to light cigarettes, the enemy could see you and shoot you in your trench, stuff like that. But 20 years later or 25 years later, when the extended dance mix of World War I became World War II, nobody was on a horse. Tech, transportation had been revolutionized. Everything changed in 20 years. Everything. And people still ride horses recreationally. Cool. Great. <laughs> uh, but nobody who's serious about getting moving around, let alone conducting a war, does it on a horse. So let us be optimistic, people. When we electrify all ground transportation, the cars, buses, trucks, and trains do not know where the electrons came from. Or okay. care. They probably don't care. It can be from a nuclear, a nuclear power plant, a coal-fired power plant, a wind turbine, a battery that stored energy from solar panels yesterday. The electric transportation is just a key step in the transition to a clean economy. It is not the be-all, end-all. Uh, it's, it's just something we got to get done. Electrify all ground transportation. Let's go. Solve the problem of air transportation. Air transportation has created uh, a lot of pollution. I'll give you that. Certainly a lot of carbon dioxide, greenhouse emissions. But it's also made the world smaller and better for most people. As former government employee Barack Obama remarked, if you couldn't choose where you would be born on earth, couldn't choose where, uh, Zimbabwe, Denmark, Sydney, Auckland, uh, uh, Paris, you couldn't choose where, Cape Town, but you could choose when. This would be the time. As much as we think things suck, they suck way less than they used to. Oh, yeah. No question. So let us get to work, people, and solve these problems. And for the climate deniers, would you just retire? <laughs> and it would be really good, Mark Morano, Joe Bastardi, if you guys said, wow, I was wrong all these years. Now it's time for us to get to work. That would be a great thing. You could influence people. The other thing that has happened, which didn't used to be, is Fox News, where you have... Oh. Don't get this, me started on the media. We have accidentally allowed the consolidation of news organizations so that one of them is not really a news organization for about a half of its day. And that's, that's been, that's really a challenge. So uh, let's solve these problems. So, okay, so last few questions for you. Um, uh, I'm curious, what's your favorite sci-fi book? Um. Phew. My favorite. Well, I like that. Well, I like uh, very much like the um, Foundation trilogy, but my favorite sci-fi really is Star Trek. Oh, really? Huh. Uh, because Star Trek is an optimistic view of the future with science. Hmm. Optimistic view of the future with science. I remember very well Captain Kirk going, "What do you want? Credits? Credits? This extraordinary idea that in the future people wouldn't carry cash." I hardly carry cash because my phone bleep, bleep, bleeps everything. 
Uh, do you take Apple Pay? Yeah. Do you take Venmo? Yeah. And so what we got to do, everybody, is make sure the internet is robust and secure. Can't mess with that. Have to invest in that. Um, as someone who has been doing science since how old were you when you first started, first got into it? First got into science? Yeah. I don't know, three. three. I got stung by a bee and my mom put ammonia on it and the ammonia bottle had a skull and crossbones and I thought, she's trying to kill me, which I could understand. Huh. I was a rambunctious little kid, little boy. Yeah. But the ammonia somehow denatures the venom and the bee sting and it yeah. feels better. And I went, that is cool. I remember this very well. I think I was four. So I, and then I, my grandfather was an organic chemist. My father called himself Ned Nye, boy scientist. My mother was recruited to break codes during World War II because she was good at math and science. So I was brought up with it. I don't know, man. But the question, I don't know, man. So the question is, uh, what, is the, what is the coolest science thing? Like, what is the thing that you think is oh, the greatest? Here's what fl flips me out at some point, at some moment every single day. Okay. You and I are made of atoms that were created in exploding stars. Stars like the sun, our sun goes yellow for a while, then it goes red, then the photon pressure going out is overwhelmed by the gravity coming in, and they explode. And when they explode, they fuse uh, protons into multi-protonic nuclei, and that's why, everybody, the more common elements are even-numbered. You know, there's, there's more... Uh, there's more carbon than there is lithium, for example. Anyway, uh, and so you and I are made of these atoms, molecules made from these atoms. And it turns out that things like uh, amino acids are pretty common. They form pretty commonly. So you and I are at least one way that the universe knows itself. We are one way the universe knows it exists. Do, 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 do. That what, flips me out every day. How, wait, so how is it that we are one way that the universe... We are made of the universe. We are made of stardust. But how does it know it exists? Because so you we, and I know, we seem to know that we exist. And you can get into arguments oh, about the nature of consciousness, but I feel that I am conscious enough to know that I am conscious. I think, therefore, I exist. So, so the universe created us but we may have created the universe well i don't think we created the universe but we if we are if we are part of the universe we are part of the universe and we are able to reason that we are part of the universe which is so this is, is this what carl sagan was talking about when he used to say that's how like where he believed that we that he didn't necessarily believe there was a god but he believed that the universe was well that he said we are made of star stuff we are made of the stuff of stars so therefore, we're one way the universe knows that there's a universe. Do you a believe? Cosmos. Do you believe that there that the universe was created by something, or that it Don't was know. just? So, so it's interesting. There's the, in this book that I'm reading, um, the Accidental Universe. Ah, uh, they they spoke to like 1,600 scientists from Harvard and Yale and all these places. MIT. Oh, if they're from Harvard and Yale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but from all over. And and um, no, and the 20... people Harvard is a good school. Yeah, it's all right. I mean, it's uh, no UC San Diego. It's okay. <laughs> But um, uh, it's no University of Washington. It's okay. But 20... didn't have an engineering school when I was a kid. What kind of what's what's that? <laughs> I didn't even get a degree, so who, who's counting? But um, uh, 
they asked them if they believed in God or some higher power, or, you know, and 25% did. Do you believe in no, nothing? No, no. You just think that we're just these chemical reactions, yeah. And that However, I am open-minded as the, I mean, I am Mr. open-minded. Show me some evidence and I am on board right away. I have nothing. But uh, this idea, as I say, as we started talking about at the very beginning of this podcast, which has been the most fun ever, thank you for having me. Totes agree. Is uh, uh, there's two ways of looking at it. This vast, unknowable nature of nature is either very troubling or very exciting. So the claim in science is that we have a process, the scientific method, and a collection of facts produced by the scientific method that enables us to know nature. The premise in science, like the premise in a comedy bit, the premise is that everything is knowable, that we could know everything. Now, this is to say, or this is to acknowledge that the double slit experiment and where the photon goes is so far not figured out. The Planck time, 10 to the minus 43rd seconds, is still not known. And what happened before the Big Bang, if that's even a reasonable question, is unknown. But we have a process by which we can investigate these mysteries. However, if it's true that there is a multiverse and there are multiple universes, this is the part that blows my mind. If that is true and science figures out every single thing up to the edge of that. science is made by scientists. Yeah, but even if, 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 if we figure out everything up to the edge of that, we will never, the belief is that we would never be able to go to another universe and we will just have to believe well, so the big the evidence for a multiverse, as I understand, or multiverses, is that there's no reason they couldn't exist. Correct. Okay. All right. <laughs> Let's investigate that. Okay, but I'm not gonna. You know, I'm. Uh, it's. I think I'm still they, planning to eat lunch. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, there's a, we. There was a British documentary, The Astronomers. This is getting to be almost thirty years ago. Where's a guy who had to sell his car. Because he couldn't think about the cosmos and drive. It was just too much to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I understand that, where the whole the nature of nature or the origin of humankind or the nature of consciousness, that how could it emerge from these chemicals, from stardust? How is this possible? It was just too much, too much. So he, he couldn't drive at the same time. And I really understand that, but I use the expression often, well, you have to sell your car. <laughs> you just have to sell your car. It's probably good for the environment. So that, sure. That's well, a perfect unless closing, you get uh, around by some other, you know, yeah, a bicycle. Uh, um, if you always take the Lyft or the Uber X or whatever it is, the, the huge the, thing, Uber yeah. pool. Um, no, don't take the pool. You always get the largest one. Uh, got it. Then maybe you come out behind if you do it that way. Um, tell everyone where they can find out more about light sale and so planetary.org planetary.org is the home the website for the planetary society i am the ceo i took one class from carl sagan it changed my life he started the planetary society with a couple other guys head of jet propulsion lab bruce murray and lou friedman who was an orbital mechanics guy at jet propulsion lab i'm a charter member i uh followed it closely i learned about solar sails by reading lou friedman's book uh I uh, became vice president when it turned out that Carl Sagan's kids, or his later kids, watched the Science Guy show. Then um, 
these guys on the board of directors convinced me that I could do this, and now I'm the CEO. I've been involved with this organization for 39 years. Uh, it is an inherently optimistic view of the future. Space exploration brings out the best in us. Space exploration is where we solve problems that have never been solved before. So check us out at planetary.org and check out my new podcast, my podcast, yeah. Science Rules. Bill, thank you so much thank for you. taking the time it's today. Been it's so been cool, great. Nick. It's thank been you. great, man. Carry on. Carry on. Thanks to my guest this week, Bill Nye, the science guy. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsor this week, The New Yorker and Stamps.com. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. Happy 4th of July. I will see you all next week.